0: Head to my website, simonmundy.com, or Amazon, Waterstone, Smith's, places like that, to get your copy.
1: In the market for investment worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer.
0: Hello and welcome to the Life Lessons Podcast with me, Simon Mundy. In this episode, I'm delighted to be joined by author, columnist and former Olympian Matthew Saeed. And the theme of our conversation is, what is the point of sport? Now, so often we hear the cliche that sport's all about winning and trophies. And I would argue that views not just confined to sport, but can be applied to life more broadly. So I argue that the real joy of sport and life is when we lose ourselves. And that can happen when we play sport, when we watch sport. But the portals into this kind of presence that we all love are vast and include art, music, conversation, nature, reading, the list goes on. And the theme of this conversation is also really the essence of my book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. And Matthew very kindly gave me an endorsement saying... Champion Thinking blends compelling sporting moments with thought-provoking philosophical insights, entertaining and enlightening. So if you enjoy this episode and resonate with what we talk about, then Champion Thinking will be right up your street. I hope you enjoy our conversation.
2: Matthew Saeed, it's an absolute pleasure to see you again. How are you? Likewise, Simon. Do you know, it's funny, I, I've seen you on the, on the box and uh, the brilliant Wimbledon reporting and listened to the podcast. But I've got to say, the last time I think we connected face to face, if I remember rightly, was the first time we did a podcast together on my book Rebel Ideas. And I was sat there with you in New Broadcasting House and thinking, you know, who is this Simon Mundy? I can see he's got massive potential as a broadcaster. But then afterwards, honestly, you did it brilliantly, I think. You really... It was lovely for me because you'd clearly read the book and absorbed it, which isn't always the case when you've written a book and you're interviewed about it and people are asking questions and clearly haven't read any of it. Um, And you really brought it to life. And I was stopped so many times in the coming weeks, including by some of your previous bosses at the BBC, uh, to say they'd enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to this. And I love the fact you want to talk a bit more about sport the philosophy of sport, white means so much to us. Mm. Uh, It's been a big part of my life. So Simon, thanks so much for inviting me again.
0: Well, that was lovely of you to say all of those things. You know, I thoroughly enjoyed our last conversation. Rebel Ideas was a brilliant book. And um, as I said to you at the time, I was well aware who you were because I was aware of you both as an author, as a columnist, but also as a sportsman. You know, I remember you very much from your table tennis days and, um, And I'm actually going to correct you just briefly. Happens a lot these days. I'm used to it. (laughs) Yeah, time distorts. It has done over the last uh, few years. But actually, the last time we saw each other was not when we recorded. You and I actually met up because you very kindly, very generously spared some time to give me uh, a few thoughts and a bit of advice ahead of me writing my book. Uh, So we met up in a cafe somewhere. Cafe somewhere. Possibly Chiswick. Yeah, Yeah, somewhere like that. It was very nice. But I think that speaks volumes, you know, that you were willing to gracious enough to take the time out of your schedule to to share some words of wisdom, many of which I can are still ringing in my head now. I'm not sure that I put them to (laughs) as good a use as I could have done, but 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 I really appreciate it. And I think I think that does speak volumes. You know, despite all your success, Matthew, you're let's put it bluntly, just a good bloke. And I think that's really important in, in a world where, you know, people are quote unquote successful.
2: That's very kind, Simon. Thank you. And when when you become goodness, what would it be? So the the pinnacle of your success, and I'm sort of a, a crusty has been. I'll reach out for a coffee in, in Richmond in in a decade.
0: We never know when that pinnacle is going to be, right? It might <laughs> yeah, have true. already it, it might have already been and gone, Matthew. We never <laughs> know. So uh, anyway, listen. It is great to have you back. As I said last time, we spoke about about rebel ideas. Just a quick word on that. That was such a innovative book. It was obviously hugely well received. Do you feel like it had the impact on organisations, on people in the way that you would have liked it to? And that probably requires you to quickly perhaps give a sort of elevator one line synopsis of of it as well.
2: Yeah, I, I think it did have the impact that I hoped. I mean, what I was seeking to do with the book is to take this concept of diversity something of a buzz concept in the world today, and really give it a level of rigor that I think it hadn't had hitherto. In other words, what are the different voices, insights, information that we need in a room, in a cabinet, in a a, a group of whatever kind, in order to solve problems and to make wise judgments? Um, I start the book with the CIA. Uh, the American intelligence agency which hired brilliant individual analysts but because of a slight bias in recruitment the people doing the recruiting hired people who looked and sounded like them uh, who came from the same demographic background and this is quite a pervasive human bias we tend to feel more comfortable around people who look and sound like we do and so 95% of the analytical intake at the CIA came from a very narrow demographic. They were white, male, middle class, West Coast, Anglo-Saxon Protestants. And there's nothing wrong with coming from that background, by the way. Somebody from that background has a huge amount to contribute to an intelligence team, trying to anticipate threats emerging from around the world. But what I argue in the book is that when you have 95% from that background, you're going to miss things because they lack certain types of knowledge tacit knowledge knowledge that is lived but is difficult to formally learn and to cut a long story short I trace the kind of profound strategic misjudgments that the CIA made in the post-war period to that basic if you like homogeneity at Mm -hmm. the heart of its analytical capacity and I finished chapter one by saying they were individually perceptive but collectively blind because all of us Simon in a complex world we have blind spots and if all of us share the same blind spots, then the organization itself is blind. And we have worked, me and my team, with uh, intelligence agencies, uh, wow. boards at you know trillion dollar companies, but also family businesses, school leadership teams to try and get them to organize people. So instead of ending up in an, in an echo chamber, we have genuine diversity so that we can do the things we wish to do, uh, which is to spot terrorist threats or to create a better curriculum at a school
0: so it's been i don't know a few years since we spoke it seems to me i don't know if you agree or not that we're even more echo chambery than now than we were then do you get that sense
2: i think this is true on the i think it's a very interesting point i think that's true on the internet yes which is a globally diverse network that has spawned a series of echo chambers where people are kind of drawn to the ideologically like-minded i do deal with that in the book but i do think that this is a big problem for us and the book that i'm research i've just recently started researching my next book is is how that doesn't just lead to kind of segmentate uh, segmented i suppose is the right word groups on the internet uh, often who don't trust each other. But it leads to certain types of miscommunication. People don't quite understand what each other are saying. And I think that could be a really big problem for us politically uh, going forward. So, no, I think I think you're right. I think your diagnosis is right.
0: I completely agree with everything you've just said. I'm very excited about your new book. And, and just to wrap up this little mini section of our conversation, please do go back and listen to our earlier conversation about Matthew's fantastic book, rebel ideas right but today we are primarily looking at sport like what is what's sport all about what is the real beauty of sport looking at it i suppose through a philosophical lens why do we love it why do we need it as well as i think what it reveals about us as people and even dare i say about reality at large but we can go down that rabbit hole (laughs) but before i before we let's say get into the weeds of it i do want to Dig a bit more into into you and your backstory, because I didn't get this opportunity last time because we were we had so much to get through with with rebel ideas, so you are you know, a very well known author now, consultant speaker, you've toyed with the idea of moving into politics, which I think would be a very welcome addition. But before all of that, you were a table tennis pro. What I would like to start by asking is, how did you get into it? And at what point did you realize you loved it?
2: Well, first of all, thanks for calling it Table Tennis. The amount of people <laughs> who call it ping pong, making it sound like a kind of jumped up parlor yeah, game, roughly yeah. equivalent to tiddlywinks. Whereas, of course, you as a, a sports aficionado know it's a globally competitive sport oh, and a, it takes courage. and a wonderful sport. Here. It's a wonderful but, sport. Uh, so I, I mean, sort of to take it right back to the beginning, I, there's me, a mixed race boy growing up in uh, suburban Reading in the late 1970s, 1980s. My father was born in India during the Raj. Uh, He moved to Pakistan after partition. Uh, And then he came to, because he was from a Muslim background, uh, he came to England to study law in the early 1960s. And then he had, it's quite unusual, but he had a a, a vision in his university bedsit of, of Christ. And he converted from Islam to Christianity. Family obviously very upset at the time. They eventually reconciled themselves to it. But he started going to a church where he was uh, in Diggs, in Bromley, in Kent, south- southeast, southeast London. And he met my mum, uh, a redheaded Welsh girl from a farming community uh, in North Wales. They fall in love. Uh, my mum's only 16. My dad's you know, a decade or so older both families massively against it. They said, don't do it. Don't, you're going to have mixed race kids. You can't do that to them. But thankfully for... for you can't siblings, do that
0: to them. Yeah, exactly.
2: They rejected this advice. You know, got <laughs> married, were, were still married when my father passed away in 2021. Uh, Mum's still going, fantastic. She played a big role in our sport, by the way. And one of the things I remember as the only kid with, with brown skin in my class at school, and you know, of course in the 70s, Racism was a, was a very open, yeah. vitriolic part of, of British society. The P word was used all the time, including by a couple of my teachers. Mm. My father wasn't getting promoted in the civil service because of his colour, even though he was very hardworking, very talented. I say this, Simon, because I remember vividly my father saying to me and my older brother, Andrew, you know what? If you want to succeed, you need to get involved in an activity where discrimination is going to be difficult.
0: I, I just want to ask one really quick question, which is that you say even the teachers used the P word. At that time, were you almost unsurprised by that? You know, Looking back, it's so shocking. But at the time, was it just, okay, well, that's just kind of the way it is? I mean, I'm sure it's still stung, but how, how did you feel?
2: It was both those things, Simon. It was how it was, and it stung so incredibly painfully it's difficult to really get it across I remember going with my mum and brother to watch my first England game at Wembley in 78 Uh, I was seven my brother was nine Uh, you know we came from a pretty working class background and um, I remember mum buying a hot dog for both of us on the way in which was really extravagant Uh, and then we get in and it was the first time a black player had played for the England men's team. Viv Anderson, yeah, in England Czechoslovakia. And I'm you know, with my mum. We we're excited, but the N word is being rained down from the terraces. You know, we were constantly conscious of being called the P word by pretty much anyone anywhere. When leaving school, there was a a bakery near the exit, and there was a kick peas effing peas out of this country. Vote mm-hmm. N F. Do you, do you know what I mean by an F? This yeah. is a national yeah. front. National it was the a, yeah. a major right-wing organization at the time, so the fact that it was pervasive made it sting even more. And I do remember dreaming, often as a young person, that I'd wake up with white skin because I wanted to integrate. I wa- I loved Britain. I wanted to be part of this community. I, my father loved Britain as well, despite the difficulties he faced. You know, we had the option of playing table, t- you know, later on to play for Pakistan or India. We had the heritage to do so. But me and my brother wanted to play for England, but we wanted to be accepted for who we are on the basis of the attributes we could bring. And dad said to us, sport is a wonderful liberator because if you win there's no way that somebody can say you're not good enough. Whereas in the civil service, he was doing great work, but he wasn't getting promoted because there's a bit of ambiguity in real life. There are great areas, there's subjectivity, there's interpretation. And he saw sport, we did judo, we did tennis, football, table tennis, badminton. He saw it as great engines of meritocracy. They're not perfectly meritocratic, right? You need money to join the clubs, to get the equipment. But table tennis was very democratic because the, the bats were cheap. Uh, you know, with the tennis, we had these not very good rackets that were a bit warped, but with table tennis, it didn't matter quite so much. And that's why he backed it so hard. So so there is an aspect, a, an indispensable aspect of sport that I think has often made it a vehicle for people from backgrounds who may be discriminated against to do well in life.
0: I think that's probably the first really valuable point to reflect on in terms of the point of sport is the fact that it does away once you're past the barriers to entry with the hierarchies that are so prevalent in life, like when you're on, on the pitch, when you're at the table tennis table in the middle of a point, okay, you might think, Oh, this person's better than me. When you're fully engrossed in the action, it's a completely level playing field. And that in itself is something very beautiful about sport, but you I dodged agree. my initial question.
2: Matthew. Just did, Simon, can I just oh, throw in something quickly there for, for something like golf. It's still elitist. You need clubs. You need access to a course. It's difficult. You know, Faldo said that he used to, you know, sort of Nick Faldo, the, the yeah. great uh, British golfer, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, six uh, mass, uh, major titles, yeah. um, you know, he used to kind of ju- go over the fence at the local club. But, uh-huh. you know, F1, Why why is it that so many F1 drivers have had parents who have been F1 drivers? Because you need a certain amount of money to make it. Football is very meritocratic because the entry costs are so low, just need a ball and shoes. That's why, if you look at football players who have reached the elite, they're from all over the world sub Saharan Africa, you know, the streets of South America. There's a beautiful sense of meritocracy in football. You know what? If we could transpose that kind of genuine meritocracy to the law, to politics, to the professions the world would be so much a better place. That is the most important task of politics, by the way. Um, so I just wanted to, to jump in because I think it would be a shame if people thought we were saying it's completely level, which it isn't, but certain parts of it do have that that quality.
0: But I, I would say once you're through the barriers to entry, whatever they may be, it, it let's say cost, this, that and the other, but once you're through that... Then I do think, yeah. you know, when you when you're locked in combat, right. that's right. when I mean, you know, yeah. there's no, it's no, oh, Matthew said the the celebrated author, the columnist, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, versus Simon, the soon to be not perhaps so celebrated author. So true, so all true. of that goes. The and, identity and by the, goes.
2: By the way, the ancient uh, the ancient Greeks, who were really the civilization who brought sport to a mass audience for the first time and revered it in the culture everyone competed naked you know they and it was supposed to be that you lost all the symbols of rank because people would wear different clothing depending where they were in the social hierarchy or different kinds of jewelry everyone competed naked they started at the same place the referees were supposed to be impartial whether you were an aristocrat or a carpenter competing in the ancient sanctuary of of olympia and you're absolutely right, Simon. In that, in that sense, yeah. Once you're there in the in the heat of battle, it's beautifully egalitarian.
0: Yeah, our identity dissipates. Right. So um, let's go back though. Though okay, so you and table tennis. Okay, so your father has said, laid out the truisms of the world around you. But and I know there was the club near you. But you know, for me, I remember tennis is my sport. I never reached your level. Did love table tennis as well, by the way, very much. How good so. you get
2: at tennis? You've kept that quiet. Well,
0: well, okay. How good did I get? I was the Oxshott Village Sports Club Men's Champion 2002. That was my peak, Matthew.
2: How big was Oxshott? Ock- yeah, no,
0: I got it. Yeah, and yeah, listen, yeah. Andrew Castle, at Jeremy Bates won it in subsequent years. <laughs> I'm not sure I won it if he'd have been in the competition that year. But uh, so, so I wasn't bad. Dodgy footwork, but you know, good hands. Good, not bad at table tennis. Anyway, but my point being, I remember falling in love with tennis because I remember connecting with a forehand at one point and it feeling so good that I was like oh I want more of that and I went from being someone who was taken down there to do some exercise by my mother to someone who spent every waking moment that I could down there ringing whoever I could to to play so I remember falling in love with the sport and then I became immersed in you know, who won what and watching the Wimbledon highlights videos. And here we are many years later, me being a a big tennis nerd. So do you have a similar moment?
2: Yeah, definitely. So my mum and dad, so my dad wasn't that into sport, but for reasons we can't work out. They managed to afford a kind of a a makeshift table tennis table for the garage. (laughs) They bought these two sandpaper bats for me and my brother. Yeah, Andy was written on the surface of one of them and Matt, Matthew, was on the surface of the other. And we're knocking this dodgy plastic ball back and forth in the garage. No run back at all. But we liked it and we're playing and and, and we, as you say, we get immersed in it, in, in the, the flow that you get in the zone when you're hitting the ball back and forth and you're beginning to get a rhythm. And then we uh, went to a, a, a local club at the school just up the road, and there were two players there: Steve Hodder and Steve Keast. They, they, you know, they weren't great players, but the way they hit the ball just blew us away. And I remember that moment very well. And the reason it must have been significant is all these years later, you know, my older brother's fifty-five; I'm fifty-three now. We still remember saying we didn't know it was possible for table tennis to look so dramatic, for people yeah. to be that far away from the table, hitting it hard, and then. You know, from there we got into a into a proper club. We had a fantastic coach, and it was a journey just just a marvelous journey.
0: I think it's interesting that you use the words flow and zone in there. We'll we'll come back and dig more into that. I've heard you speak about, for example, the social element that you got as well because of the variety of characters that were at oh, your yeah. club, weren't they? And so, ah. you know, for example, people talk about IQ being largely immovable maybe a bit movable but eq emotional intelligence as daniel goleman so compellingly argued you know the the bigger predicator of success and obviously that's you know how you manage yourself how you manage your emotions how you can read other people influence them and interacting with people of all other colors yeah. creeds and ages yep. is key for that and that's exactly what you got from the club
2: oh and by the way iq I think is very malleable. I mean, so so it's it's lifting up about a standard. Well, it was until recently about a standard deviation every generation, the Flynn effect. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's a brilliant uh, new pieces of research by Michael Muthukrishna and others about the cultural components of. I think IQ is really misunderstood, but I definitely we can come back to that. But on EQ, Simon, I totally, (laughs) totally, totally agree with you. And table tennis was amazing because, think of it. So, so the early 1980s. The club that I start playing at is the Omega Club. It's basically a prefab shed, just about big enough to have one table, no lavatory at all. It's, it's in the middle of nowhere. It's in a field in in, um, in in suburban Reading, about a mile from where we were growing up. And we all had a key, members, and you'd open it and go in, and there was a small fan heater. It was so cold in the winter. We started We'd play with gloves for the first half an hour. In the summer, ferociously hot there's like 50 members of the club, but only one table. So if you're there wow. and somebody else turns up, you know, you play five minutes and they play five. I mean, it was, it was, but then the other clubs, you know, so one of them was, was uh, Son in Common and it's just a slightly bigger shed five miles down the road. But the people who are members of this club, one works for the Prudential, which is the biggest company in Ready. He's an accountant. It's like, you know, we, we thought of him as super rich. He was probably just above average, then there's a guy who, who lived in between Reading and Oxford called Wally. The guy from Prudential was Brian. Then there was Jonathan Samuel. He, so I'm I'm like 11 playing in this league. You know, these are like 40, 50, 60. Polish was the name of a team. This is people from the Polish community. Kozlowski, uh, Rosinski, Fafinski. They were a fantastic trio of attacking players. One of whose father... Uh, fought uh, for for the RAF during the Battle of Britain. One of the Polish people who, who was involved in that, and then there were there was a team. There, was, there weren't that many women, but there were some women. Gail Davis used to play Gillette's. Used to, Gillette. You know the company. They had off. They had offices in in Reading, and then where we would play there is basically adjacent to the bar. So uh, after the seventh match in any game, you had to have tea and coffee for your, for the visiting team oh, yeah. and of course at the omega club it's a nightmare because there's like one plug socket my mum would have to come with a kettle and you know some digestives and it was a real palaver but at Gillette you could get black currant and lemonade or, or even orange juice and lemonade and it, we used to look forward to it for weeks and months and you meet you don't even realize you're competing against them you're fighting against them having great matches but you're talking to them yes. you're learning about other human beings about mm-hmm. the experiences they've had um and it was just an incredible grounding in what it was to be a human being in a diverse community. And I've got to tell you, I loved every moment of local league table tennis it's called The Grassroots. There's mm-hmm. a wonderful novel by Howard Jacobson. He won the, you should get him on this podcast, Simon. He okay. won the Booker Prize for Literature uh, for his novel, The Finkler Question. But he wrote a terrific novel called The Mighty Waltzer. About the Manchester Ping Pong League of the 1950s, you know, where he was playing for a club and he would go and play against Allied Jam and Marmalade, and it, it, it's just it was a it was the most brilliant grounding in the development of EQ, and I and I miss those days very much.
0: Okay, so that's one element of sport: the, the EQ, the belonging side as well. Right, you know, and you get that in tennis, right?
2: I mean, I mean I'm, I'm, absolutely, I'm, the
0: things you just described there. Ring very true for me. The although tennis it, is a bit more middle class. I, I,
2: I'm a member no, I of tennis.
0: Listen, I, growing up because I was young when I played in for my club. You know, I, I was twelve through 16, 17, 18 Probably was when I played my most. I didn't notice it as much. You know, I probably would more now. But at the time, it was just it was just people. I was more conscious of the the difference in ages. But yeah, yeah. it was like you say getting together afterwards, sitting down, that was as much part of it, having those conversations, learning to collaborate with a doubles partner you didn't want to play with, gelling with one that you did, even though you couldn't quite quantify why. So all these things I think that have served me, served me very well. There's a few other things as well. So uh, this is something that rings very true for me as well, which is that still the case, actually, I haven't played much tennis recently, but when I would play tennis and it would be an inconsequential match, let's say it was um, a ladder match in the club or even a friendly, and you're at a key point and it's six all deuce, and I'll be serving and I'm there, a nervous wreck, right? And I'm thinking, oh my God, you know, as if getting the next serve in is the most important thing in life. And I think what that taught me doesn't mean I don't still fall for it, is that how much our mind tricks us. We spend so much of our life worrying outside of sport about, oh my God, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen. Sport was one of the areas that taught me, don't believe it because it can even make you think that hitting a double fall at juice at six all in a game against someone when no one's watching, where there is literally no consequence, that is serious as well. So I think it teaches you about the mechanics of the mind which we're going to get a bit more into with some of your other more, uh, shall we say high profile
2: incidents imminently, but just some quick thoughts on that. I I agree with that to a point. I mean, the only thing, I don't know if you found this, I do know that a lot of people who are very good at sport at controlling their arousal, their anxiety, um, playing sport, local league, progressing through, you begin to figure out how to get the best out of yourself at the right moments at the right time who would leave sport and then they'd be on a stage giving a speech or doing a job interview but they they couldn't transfer it from the one domain to the other that's i've met a lot of sports people who really stru- you know they they become very good at dealing with anxiety in a specific context that's but they're not very good in 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 terms of cutting across contexts and i think that's one thing that's very interesting about the human mind but did did you feel that Once you were able to control your anxiety at sport, if you were doing a live broadcast, you brought the same techniques to bear.
0: Well, it's interesting you say that because I was thinking of using this example. But after I touched on your example of having a tense moment and I just wouldn't be too much of a fan of using the word control, because to me, it's not about control. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because what I learned was, if, if, if I can illustrate it with a quick example, actually, from broadcasting. So London 2012, I was working for Radio 1 at the time, and I was asked to do on Super Saturday, so when Mo, Jess, and Greg Rutherford all won gold, to do a live broadcast from the fan park in front of the big screen. And it was building up to be this huge thing. And it felt like a big deal because... It was for Five Live rather than Radio One. It felt like there were important bosses listening, et cetera, et cetera. The, the consequence of the evening was growing. And so I felt this, this anxiety, if you can call it that, these, these sensations in my stomach sort of starting to grow. And what I did was I I tried to ignore them, avoid them, distract myself, just basically, in short, get rid of them. And Needless to say, that didn't work. What happened was they amplified, they went up into my head. I had those doomsday scenarios, like, please run out of here. My career's going to be over in about an hour and <laughs> you know, 10. You know, it was catastrophizing. But the adrenaline did kick in and it was fine, but not enjoyable. However, when I learned what has been effective for me that I do find to be useful in any anxiety-inducing scenario, whether it be giving a talk, a live broadcast a speech whatever it may be actually for me in the old days it used to be anxiety induced insomnia even and that is around understanding that these thoughts and feelings that come up are normal there's not a problem with them until you make them a problem and so for me it's been about oh as soon as they come up instead of like oh no here come those feelings it's like oh hello feelings welcome come on in and it's that kind of acceptance so an analogy, or perhaps it's a metaphor that I like to use, and that is often used, is, is being the sky, and those thoughts and feelings are the weather. And, and in, in that case, they sort of pass on through. And so, a few years later, I was doing a live broadcast, and I was in the wings, ready to go on to a, a live TV program with a, a presenter who's renowned for being pretty tough with her questioning. And I felt that same those same sensations, but rather than do the kind of resist, I did the opposite and welcome. And it actually alchemized it from anxiety to one of excitement so for me acceptance is the key element that actually for me would operate in any scenario that, now that's me speaking and i know for example alistair cook was the same he used to battle it until he realized that no it's like you're going to have these thoughts you're going to have these feelings you're going to feel like an imposter sometimes that's normal that's our software that's our hardware Whatever, whatever you want to call it it's not battling them not resisting them allowing them to be there befriending them and not being ruled by them that would be my uh my approach
2: yeah and you're right to pick me up on saying it's about control because i think often when we're under pressure we try and over control yes i've been reading some wonderful essays and books by uh, a neuroscientist and philosopher called ian mcgilchrist he wrote oh, yeah. a very interesting book called the master and his emissary where he talks about the distinction between the left brain and the right brain. And the the tendency, I think, is under pressure is to use the effectively is to try and control. So in sport, you're playing in the Olympic Games and you're so keen to do well you start to try and control the movement of the bat through the ball to make sure that the ball goes onto the other side of the table. But when you're minutely focused on the movement of your hand, you're forgetting to move your feet, you're forgetting to read your opponent, your whole body slows down, your perception narrows, and you have a catastrophe. And actually being able to let go, to allow the unconscious competence, the unconscious mind, the repertoire of skills that one has built up over time to be given full expression, I think, is part of how we do well under pressure. So that idea of letting feelings of anxiety flow through one's body, not to be intimidated by them. Um, I like that metaphor very much. I, I hadn't heard it. And, um I mean, I have other techniques, but no, I take the point. And it's a wonderfully important skill to develop. The only other thing I'd throw into the mix here is that given that this is a perfectly normal emotion, you speak to any politician, you know, any broadcaster, anyone who looks super cool, and they will tell you they feel anxious Mm -hmm. and they went through a period where that anxiety could be debilitating. But the more you try things that make you uncomfortable, the more you develop techniques and tools for you that help you to get through it. Yeah. And the other really important thing is if you do ever fail, that's okay too. It's yeah. not the end of the world. You know, yeah. even if you are disappointed to lose in the Olympic games, you know, you're still alive. You still have your family. Absolutely. You still have people who care for you. And I think we're going to get on to the fact that life is about more than sport. In fact, it's about more than any given thing that we do. Yes. Um, and I think that recognition is tremendously important too.
0: Well, you've summed up quite a, a few things there. You nodded to what happened to you, and I think we should give a quick recap. I've heard you talk about putting things in perspective. So I know one of your techniques is before you go on, if it was a really important table tennis match or a speech or whatever, you might say, "My parent, my parents, my parents will love me regardless."
2: Yeah, win, or, win of- or lose, win or lose, <laughs> my parents will still love me. Okay, <laughs> I still so, say it. Yeah, I still say that now. I mean, I, I've probably given. I mean, I don't do as much broadcasting news, but what makes me nervous? I always get nervous if I'm giving a public speech. And I've probably mm. done, I don't know, 2,000 of them. Mm. And I still say, succeed or fail, my parents or my nowadays my mother will still love me. That unconditionality of love is a tremendous sense of assurance because you know that what really matters will still be true. And I remember, <laughs> well, I won't go through the different, techniques that people use to make them feel that it's okay if things go badly wrong because some of them are kind of quite personal to the athletes i've interviewed but i think a lot of people use techniques of that of course of course but i think the key thing to remember
0: is that it's completely normal i've heard people talk about oh imposter syndrome oh it's it's more of a thing for women than men or whatever and I disagree. I think I think it's baked into all of us. I think it's absolutely natural for everyone to feel imposter syndrome, quote unquote, you know, it's a bit of a loaded term in, in any environment where they're sort of stretching themselves. And I think actually, there'd be something a bit wrong if you didn't feel that. And so I think just understanding that that let's just bracket them under uncomfortable thoughts and feelings are normal. They're a completely normal part of the human experience. They don't have to rule you. That's half the battle won, and then how you do it is obviously relatively personal, but just real quickly, Matthew, I mean, you've already kind of without naming it specifically, just quickly talk us through what happened in two thousand I'm sorry
2: the the yeah, well, that was the big the big meltdown because that was the Olympic Sydney two thousand where I had an outside chance of winning a medal. I qualified automatically as one of the top players in Europe. Long build up, long build up. You know, two years out, we're really planning in, in forensic detail what it's going to take to peak on the big day. And uh, I remember going out to play, and my coach, wonderful person, Søren Arlen, he was Swedish, who happened to be working in England. And he, he was trying to inspire me, Simon. He said, what happens? You know, just as I'm about to walk out to play. And by the way, it's in it's in the show core. It's going out live on BBC One. He says, What happens over the course of the next 40 minutes will determine whether the last four years were a waste of time or not. <laughs> and I kind of went, Yeah, yeah, that's right. But then something switched in my mind. And I remember going out, there were a couple of Union Jacks in the in the stands, and I thought of my parents watching back home and my first coach. And I tried too hard. I tried to control my movements, and it all broke down catastrophically. Back then, table tennis games were up to 21. You know, a normal game with two top players at a similar level. I think I was ranked above my opponent in the world. I was ranked above him in the world. It would have been like 22, 20, 21, 19. Yeah. You know, 21, 15 would be unusually yeah. one-sided. I lost yeah. 21, 2. And he's looking at me thinking, what's going on? It mm-hmm. was a classic choke. Um, And then I lost the second game, 21-7, lost the third game. And I walked over, shook hands with my coach, who knew that I'd choked. He could see how horribly it had gone wrong. Uh, And I got on the bus to go back to the Olympic Village, called British Airways, changed my flight, and flew home two days later.
0: Uh, Matthew, you're... You're killing me with the telling of this story, even though I've heard it before. Uh, the story does have positives. First of all, you did win the Commonwealth not long afterwards. And second of all, in many ways, this forged your career, hasn't it? I mean, it, had that not happened, you've got a fierce intellect anyway, but you wouldn't perhaps have been inspired to delve in the way that you have and forge the career that you have, which I, I think is another interesting thing that, again, our mind sort of says, oh, this is a disaster. This is going to mean this and that that. But oftentimes, what appears so bad in the moment can end up being a, be a blessing years down the line. And i it, it's further evidence for me that to take what our mind says with a massive pinch of salt.
2: Yeah, definitely. Couldn't agree more because it, it did throw me into a deep fascination about the mind. Mm. Why have we evolved in such a way that when we want to do something well, we're most likely to fall apart. That seems like a curious thing to happen. You'd have thought that evolution would equip us with the capability to do things well when it mattered, because that's what would help us to survive. And that paradox was very interesting to me, and I did go and read deeply on it, and I think I'm still reading on it today. Um, You know, social science is in the middle of one of its its most interesting periods. Because we are learning so much more about the mind, the body, the interface, how ideas flow through social networks. You know, AI has added an interesting new gloss. But the point that you make that failure can be the beginning of a new opportunity. The great philosopher Karl Popper, Sir Karl Popper, um, really did argue that the, the fundamental aspect of our species has been our capacity to learn from our failures.
1: You should celebrate yourself every day. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
0: Now, this leads me to one of your articles that I read. I'm a big fan of your articles. I'm sure I've told you before. And it was all about, while blazers use sport for virtue signaling, we seek escapism. Basically, it's about well, why don't you tell us what what prompted you to write that article, and 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 what were you trying to say in a nutshell?
2: Well, I, let me say this: that that you know, for a professional sports person, your objective is to 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 win. I wanted to win an Olympic medal, but now I look back on it, what really was the most wonderful thing about it was the journey. As a as a recreational player now, tennis. By the way, we should get together for a game. I play it at Teddington.
0: Oh, that's not fun. Hey, listen, I'm bang up for that. Okay, but, g- quickly. What do you mean, the
2: journey? The journey, what I mean by that is in order for the journey to make sense, you have to care about the destination. A journey often has a kind of philosophical structure of seeking to get somewhere that one wishes to be. The irony is that when you get there, you realise that the destination didn't matter that much, and it's what you learned about yourself and your friends and everything else along the way. Robert Louis Stevenson said it's a better thing to travel than to arrive i interviewed so many sports people who they you know from martina navaratilova to serena williams lewis hamilton you name it beckham ronaldo they'll have this big ambition or somebody who wants to be a millionaire so they can buy a porsche and the moment they buy it they think is that it yes victoria pendleton went into depression after winning gold because she thought that would make her eternally happy it was the holy grail that's Oops. not how life works. You get it. And it's almost like a bereavement. The next day after the, what's going to get you out of bed in the morning? That's what I mean, that, that it's a journey that really matters. But during the journey, you have to care about the destination to get yourself out of It's one of the, I mean, look, the human a mind is a, is, a, yeah. is a deeply paradoxical thing when you yeah. deconstruct it. That's just one of the paradoxes. Um, but I was talking in this case, Simon, about sport and politics, not as a player, but as a spectator. So you're into tennis. The the sport I love above, above all others and the thing that has given me more pleasure than anything else has been the last 20 or so years of men's tennis in particular. The rivalry between Djokovic, Nadal and Federer uh, with, with a bit of Andy Murray thrown in, which was wonderful given that he's he's from the UK. I think that has been mesmerising. And I, I can't, it's difficult to convey how much that has meant to me. But look, as a spectator, the thing that gets to me is the idea that sport has to politicise everything. You know, that no matter what is happening in the world, whether it's a, you know, a, a war or, or a battle or a political controversy, or it could be anybody has died in almost any context, anywhere in the world. And it feels that it has to be, has to intrude upon sport or that, that that people involved in a particular sport in contest, should we light up the Wembley Arch, shouldn't we light up the Wembley Arch, the debate, the the argumentation, the polarisation. For me as a spectator, Simon, I know that sometimes you have to bring politics into sport. I get that. But more than anything else, I want to use it to switch off, to escape. It's a safety valve. It's a way to... To, as a spectator, to lose oneself in the joy of watching two brilliant or two brilliant teams, two brilliant sportswomen or sportsmen competing, and the fact that sport keeps interfering and coming in, I think is a big category error. What surprises me is how often sports governing bodies feel that they have to make a statement. On political issues that might divide people who don't really want to think about it when they're yeah. at the sports contest why no, do you think that happens why do you think, you think that what, happens well, I, I can tell you this. well uh, okay I, I, the, the is another kind of paradox irony when i started writing about sport i was as for the times this is like 25 years ago i was adamant that everything in the world was political conversations were political, relationships were political, sport was political, and it had to take a stance. I think as I've got older, I have realised that life is about more than politics. And actually, some of the most important aspects of life are not political. And that's why I think sport is a very important and a balanced, healthy life to get away from politics and political controversy. Um, Why do sports governing bodies feel the need to do something? Probably because... It's an expression of a certain type of power. They may feel that they can't allow a group of people to congregate without making a statement of one kind or another. Um, maybe it's a way of signaling virtue um, and so on. Uh, I does just it, think Does it, it
0: somewhat come back to the point we made about the amplification of certain voices on social media earlier? You know, the, the kind of the fear there? That-
2: well, I mean, but the thing is, there, um, Simon, is that sports undergone a very big change in that respect. So, if you if you th- let's think about commercial endorsement, celebrity endorsement, um, so there's a very interesting history here. But let's sort of fast forward to when it really became very big, which is Michael Jordan. This is a famous basketball player for the Chicago Bulls. If anyone hasn't seen the Last Dance series on Netflix, you're missing I'd out. Big thoroughly time. recommend yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so he um, endorses Nike and there's a Nike Air Jordan shoe, and it becomes a global phenomenon. Nike begin to understand how to leverage the personal qualities of somebody who was a marvellous basketball player, very resilient, very determined, ambitious, um, very uh, indicative of North American popular culture in the ni- 1980s, and it becomes an industry. Jordan is asked at this point, whether he would care to endorse the campaign of a Democratic senator who was standing against, I think it was Jesse Helms, who was a right-wing, almost borderline racist Republican. And Jordan gave this response. Um, I think, I mean, it may be apocryphal, but most people think he did say it. Um, no, I'm not going to endorse that campaign because Republicans wear sneakers too. In other words, Republicans wear trainers too. In other words, the idea is you don't take a stance on any political controversy as an athlete because you're going to, as it were, alienate half of your potential consumer base for whom you're the conduit for these big multinational companies. Now, that was the fundamental um, view. Of sports marketing through the next twenty years, Tiger Woods classically offered no response on any political issue his his um uh, press conferences were just platitudes Any question he was asked, he knew how to give an answer that would position him in a way as to be vanilla. He was basically a blank canvas upon which you could yourselves you know project your own aspirations. But that started to change slightly. So politics was completely antithetical to sports marketing uh, for quite a long time, and that began to flip. The reasons why it began to flip, I think, are interesting. I'm not sure I fully deconstructed them, but it did begin to change. Gary Lineker is a very interesting person in this regard. He said nothing politically controversial for a very long time. He was a master at surfing the middle ground and appealing to everybody. They used to call him the housewife's favourite. I mean, he may still be. I mean, that's a slightly sexist term about housewives but anyway that was what he was called in the in the 80s and 90s then he i think he realized that the world was changing and people actually admired those who took a political stance and he has obviously started to do that and it's often interfered with the perception of his impartiality as a bbc and it's been very very controversial in a different kind of a way but that's all shifted simon but i don't have a full answer for why that might have been the case
0: yeah A couple of things that I want to link together. First of all, you mentioned Tiger Woods, and there was this lovely line in in your article where you spoke about watching him, I think it was in 2005 when he won his second open, and you spoke about losing yourself in his swing. And I want to link this to two other things. One was that cultural delusion, you could say, that people have that winning the biggest titles, earning the most money getting the biggest house is synonymous with happiness. And you gave the example of, for example, Victoria Pendleton. But there are so many examples of people who've reached the top of their proverbial Everest only to be left with this feeling of where's the the joy that I was promised all along. So that I want to link there. But then also, again, in your article, you gave this lovely snapshot into your family life. So you were watching the England-Fiji game at the Rugby World Cup with your kids and your daughter was really into it. And she said something like, Daddy, are we going to lose? And you turned to her and said, I don't know, but it's a hell of a game or something to that effect. And I thought that was quite a revealing comment because to me, the general consensus is, and you'll hear it trotted out time and again, is that sport and life is about winning. It's about trophies. It's about accumulation, et cetera, et cetera. So that's that kind of the first part of the quote from, from your daughter. Are we going to lose? And then the second part is, I don't know, but this is a hell of a game. I, I'm i so immersed in it that it's its own reward. And so that then comes back to losing yourself in, in Tiger Woods' swing. And then there's the George Plimpton line as well, which I think you quote, which is about how the pleasure of sport is the cessation of time itself, now, I want to bring all these points together, because to me, I think this whole narrative it's about trophies it's about winning, actually, of course, we want to win, as you said, right, to enjoy the journey, you need a destination, but actually, I think personally having having done you know like you spoken to so many people and thought quite deeply about this, i don't agree that that with that sentiment i don't think that is. The beauty and the point of sport. I don't think it is the travies. I think there is something far more profound and deeper than that.
2: Well, that's an interesting that's an interesting question. I, I I think, you know, with the Tiger Woods swing, one of the joys of of watching golf as a journalist at the open is you're allowed under the rope. So there's a rope that keeps mm. the spectators, you yeah. know, a certain distance away from the players. But at the masters, the journalists have to stay behind the rope. But the open. Um, you're allowed under the rope. So you're actually standing pretty much with the caddies watching the swing. And that intimacy was just a revelation to me because one thing, the acoustics of how the ball sounds, particularly when the driver makes contact with it, is just has to be heard to be believed. But then also just, I did lose myself in Woods' swing. I think it's a beautiful swing, Mm. the technical efficiency of it, the way that he can shape the ball. Both fade and draw. It's just a it's a mesmerizing thing. I think the same is true of watching great sports people in any field. There's a wonderful line from David Foster Wallace on Federer. So I don't know if you've ever Uh, read this, Foster Wallace. yeah, Yeah, yeah. So this is Federer's religious
0: experience, right? Yes. This is his most famous article. I've read the article on many occasions, and he he cites a Federer forehand that a lot of people have questioned and i know exactly the one he's talking about where he's he's being yes. um, he's being played pushed down the back, back into the backhand corner he's falling backwards against agassi and unleashes this forehand winner down the line that you're like that's impossible yeah no <laughs> and and to me Federer <laughs> did that transcendent religious exp- let's call it transcendent transcendent experience As well as anybody. Yeah,
2: I think probably better than anybody. Federer, watching him on centre court for the first time was very, I'm not religious, but it was a religious experience. But, you know, when it comes to how time slows down, time becomes elastic when you're watching great sport or you're participating in great sport. I do think, to go back to something I said earlier, that happens in a more profound way if you're trying to win as a player or if you want one of the two teams or players course, to win yeah. well, you need because to be engaged, when you have you? the emotional yeah. stakes that's when the immersion becomes very deep i was trying to think why this might be and i was thinking of a game of monopoly my two kids have got into monopoly in a big way and we 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 play almost every second day uh, and if you know if we haven't got much time we just don't play the greens or or the blues so that we can build build up sets and and play out but imagine if during the game you know, I said to one of them, oh, you've landed on Mayfair with a hotel. You don't have to pay. That makes a mockery of the rules. What's the point of playing if you're not going to be constrained yeah. by the rules? Imagine if yeah. you know somebody hit the ball out in tennis. Oh, don't worry about it. Just take it again. Or if, if I said to Evie, yeah, I'm winning, but here's a couple of thousand pounds so you can beat me. The whole point of it, you need to have everybody as part of the contest wanting to win and wanting to win within the rules. There have to be constraints. And if those constraints aren't there, arbitrary constraints – you know, the, the rules of tennis, 15, 30, 40 game, it's all arbitrary. The height of the net, uh, the size of the court, um, all of it is completely arbitrary. But once one acknowledges those constraints and then decides that we want to win at this completely trivial invented game, that's when you can completely lose yourself in watching or in playing. So I, I don't think one can draw a, a complete contrast between the desire to win and the ability to, as it were, have that spiritual experience.
0: I think that's a a fair point. What I would say as an add-on to that would be that most people tend to think then that the the real reward is the winning, as opposed to that moment of full immersion, that moment where for a second time does stop I'm sure you know, uh, I can never be sure if I pronounce it right, Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, right? The guy who spoke about flow. And he he spoke about two things, you know, a distortion of time and a loss of your sense of self. And what is that sense of self? Okay, it's Simon, it's dad. I believe this. I think that this has happened. I regret this. I, you know, I've got these hopes. It's this kind of self that lives in time, as it were. Most of us find our identity through time. But then in that exact moment, where you're lost, all of that is irrelevant. For that split second, you just are. You're yourself in your purest essence. Someone like watching Federer. Federer, when he was flying, he would surprise himself. But I think the beauty of someone like that is that it gives us that same access within ourselves. Because for that moment of watching Federer, the same is true of us. We're so engrossed. Think about the 2008 final with Federer and Nadal. So it's escapism not just from politics and uh, the horrors of wars and stuff. It's also an escape from our identity and ourselves that we carry around the whole time. And I think we underestimate how much we crave and seek and enjoy that experience, that losing ourselves.
2: I agree with that completely. its I, th- I think it's an essential part of, of being a human, that you need to have those experiences the wonderful anthropology written by the the when the discipline first came into existence in the 19th century they would go to different parts of the world and they would find the same sense of transcendence where you lost your sense of identity it wasn't always in a in a in sport it might no. be in ritual dancing it might be in certain types of music it might be in terms of certain types of religious ritual i think of of how i lose myself today and sport is a big part of it tennis in particular Mm. but fantastic music Mm. i was at the theater on um saturday night and when you lose yourself in time you look at your watch uh, during a performance and you have no idea what you wouldn't even look at it during the play you look at the end and you're like my goodness i wouldn't have had a clue what time Mm. it is and i'd almost forgotten where i was or what my anxieties might have been yes um Sport does have that type. I, you know, for me, I remember doing a debate on Five Live a few years ago. What's better out of sport and art? I think both of them are wonderful in in different ways. The one thing I would say to those yeah. who, it was an interesting debate. It was with an audience in in that beautiful, is it the Sage Centre in Gateshead, just on the south side of the uh, uh, of the river, and a few of them were quite scathing and sniffy about sport. The one thing I think that sport has that's distinctive from art. You know, I've watched Shakespeare plays, but when you go and watch Henry V, you know the result of the Battle of Agincourt before the play starts. It's <laughs> scripted in advance. You know what's going to happen. Whereas when Federer plays Nadal or Navaratova plays Evert or Manchester United plays Chelsea, you do have this clash of wills that gives you a certain type of aesthetic experience where you do not know the result in advance. And that creates a different type, I'm not saying a better type, but no, a different yeah. type of excitement sport can be art there's no question about that,
0: and I think people do get sniffy, but we've all got and I think you referenced this either in this article or another one we've all got our ways of getting to that identityless timeless place you know it can be through even conversation I find it often yeah. when talking in fact, with Roger because I've been lucky enough to interview Roger Federer many times a claim to fame I did his last ever Sit down interview after his last ever victory at Wimbledon, which was special. But it's like, go you on, who
2: was that again? Was that so? So, uh, on, this he, is, he, Huber, just instant,
0: do you know, I can't even tell you who he be, but I know who he lost to. He lost to Hubert Hurkacz in the next round, six love in the yeah. third set, and uh, and never won again. Little did I know. But the point was that in the moment before Federer came, it's like, oh my gosh, it's Roger, Roger Federer the great tennis player, the man with, at the time, all the records, the beloved by crowds. And then he sits down and we chat. And after a short period of time, because he was very genial, lovely guy, you're just two people. My identity was irrelevant. His identity was relevant. And it was just a lovely exchange. So I think we find that in so many ways. But to me, I think sport is such a I'm, powerful way of accessing that
2: place. And I'm glad you mentioned a conversation. I think friendship it doesn't have to be necessarily you know, the friendship with one's significant other, platonic friendship too. Mm. Uh, when you were saying that, uh, it, it just it transported me to some of the conversations I've had down the years with my closest friends, where banter, yeah. it moves into a slightly more serious part of the conversation, a few jokes, there's a shared history. Um, there's a wonderful concept in psychology called, is it transactive knowledge, where you have this, deep receptacle of shared experiences with your best friends and so you almost you can read through the air what they're saying there's just all of these and I do think you lose yourself there when I was a lot younger going back to suburban reading there was a friend I'm sad to say I was best man at his wedding he would have been best man at mine but he died of uh, cancer tragically in his 30s and we would have conversations that would last for three four hours and that was some of the most wonderful experiences mm. of my life. And I miss him terribly. It is, it is tremendously dangerous, I think, if you go through life without giving yourself the chance to have those moments. Because I think it's the kind of person who gets to the end of their life and thinks, my God, I've, I've just been trying to achieve things without actually enjoying any of those staging posts along the way and I, I think honestly that is tragedy in its deepest sense because I agree. the other thing worth throwing it given this is a remarkably and, and interestingly philosophical conversation and you know, my view is and I know some listeners won't agree with this I think we live and we die and I don't think I I, mean, I wish there was but I don't think there's anything after death and really the only thing that makes the journey worthwhile the price of the ticket is if there are experiences along the way where you can lose yourself, where you can experience joy, incidentally or deliberately. That's what really matters.
0: Completely agree. And I'm reminded, actually, I was watching (laughs) Strictly Come Dancing, a bit of a family institution. again. How old were your kids? Eight and six months. So a real spread. Um, So the six-month-old isn't quite into it, but the eight-year-old is. So And we were watching and, and Annabelle Croft was talking and Annabelle very sadly lost her husband this year. She gave this incredibly emotional dance with Johannes, who's a, a lovely fella. But beforehand, she said, oh, you know, she loved her husband dearly. But she said, we always spent all our time looking to the future. And then all of a sudden this came up and none of us saw it coming and he passed away pretty quickly. And I think, you know, that's such an important message, isn't it? We do spend, again, to come back to that culture of delusion of, oh, I'll be happy when X, when I've achieved this, when I've won, blah, blah, blah. But the problem with that is you're continually looking to the future and ultimately a future that never ultimately arrives. And her saying that was such a, a poignant and in, an important thing to say. And so what you just said there, yes, what makes life worth living is those moments where you are, Fully present. You're not thinking, oh, I've got this to do or not I'm worried right. about this. It's not, I'm here yeah. now. And that's yeah, and where the way, joy is found.
2: Simon, I've got to tell you, it's taken me a long time to learn that. I don't want to sound as if I've of kind of mastered that. Honestly, I've, I've spent too many years not taking this, even with my own, my own two kids who I love desperately, sure. where you're not present with them at all. You're thinking yeah. about what's the next column I'm going to write. You're half listening. They can feel it. And yet the amount of joy when you do get present um, relationship with one's wife, husband, partner, whatever. So. It's easy. And I don't think I've cracked it. I know in my heart of hearts that it's important to do it and to do it well. A hundred percent. And I'm sure you're familiar with the philosopher Alan Watts, and
0: he gave an interesting video. This is insofar as we're conditioned that way, you know, you go to nursery school to get ready to go to junior school, then you take exams. And it's always, you know, the serious things coming and then you enter the world of work and that's serious, but then you get in promotion and that's serious. And it's just, everything's perpetually put off this kind of the moment of arriving is put off often for a lifetime and then we don't arrive and i think this is you know it's not just you and me who struggle with this i think this is uh, you yeah. know a, a very very deep rooted issue you could say and that's why i think sport again bringing you into the present that so to me that is the beauty of sport is when we lose ourselves in sport either playing or observing to me that is the beauty of sport so when people say it's about trophies about winning I'm like to me that's a load of old cobblers you know yes we need to have something at stake, but let me put it this way to you you're a big tennis fan so you remember the 2008 final Federer Nadal greatest final of all time would you agree
2: yeah definitely one of the top two it was certainly one of the, the top way, two. and the and the best shot ever played—the backhand down the, the line, backhand down the line, down. After, After Nadal's forehand, boom, boom the one before, yeah, oh, forehand yeah. off a chipped return, yeah, wonderful, wonderful. Um, I mean that, yes, it, yeah, the best. I'll do okay. it. Okay,
0: yeah. so he, he, here's a question for you then. Tell me about Nadal's second Wimbledon win. Who did he play in the final, and
2: what happened? So 2008, he beat he beat Federer. Nadal's next victory at Wimbledon. This is obviously a trick question. So I'm guessing it wasn't uh Federer. Um right, I let me let me as I'm as this is cogitating in my mind, okay. <laughs> can I just throw this in? For, Good for word, people, because I'm hoping that people, at least some, are interested in tennis. And you're right about Federer is a religious experience. Um I've also massively enjoyed the rivalry between Navaratilova and Everett. Oh, so yeah. this is you're probably too young for that. That was actually No absolutely... no
0: no. I used to watch the videos
2: and it's the clash of styles, right? I mean... Absolutely, brilliant. Yeah. And and also the clash of personalities, two yes. very different yeah. people, have become dear friends now. By the way, completely agree. Yeah, um, and then, but the person I've enjoyed more than any other, and I know I will lose people here, is Djokovic, and the reason for this, the reason for this is I kind of started to get his game and his approach to tennis early. I kind of felt I understood where he was coming from. And I've interviewed him I've long, long sort of two-hour interviews where he sat in, like we're talking now, about life, about family, yeah. about sport, about what it was like to grow up in a war zone. Yeah. And I think we, you know, connected reasonably well. And I felt I got something about him and I've watched many of his bits. So one thing I'd throw in is, as a potentially the greatest final alongside 2008 was the... Victory over Federer in 19. the same day that uh, England were playing New Zealand in the World Cup final. Yeah. I could see on the uh, laptop in the cricket that the, the journalists were watching both. It was it was the greatest yeah, day of sport. Day. And Djokovic was uh, 8-7 down, 40-15 down on Federer's serve. And Federer just served two aces to bring up two match points in the fifth set. And the, the stadium was ready. The phones were out. And I remember looking very closely at Djokovic. I knew what he was saying to himself. I knew the exercises. And he he played just a fantastic point at 40-30 to get back. He went on to win the match. Uh, I, I think his capacity to handle moments of dramatic pressure, to marshal his athletic virtuosity to play the right shots at the right time in the teeth, of audiences that are often universally, near universally against. I've got to tell you, the audience was more one-sided towards Federer that day than when Andy I, Murray was playing. I, I, was, I, was, I yeah, was, I was incredible. there. you there? Yeah, I was, was Cla- incredible.
0: I was sat next to Claire Balding. No left.
2: No way. <laughs> yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. Because we. I, were, I, I
0: mean, do you remember out. how
2: one-sided it was?
0: No, it was? it was. It, 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 it was, was, was. It was cacophonous. Of, yeah, it was you know, like a was Davis Cup tie.
2: It, don't know, it's like with the beep, but the journalist you're not supposed to clap you're supposed to be sit there you know mm. I, I was clapping for Djokovic the whole time and come on no, I, you know, I can't I I, I, you. I get into yeah. it I'm not a you know <laughs> people say there's a journalist you shouldn't be a fan you should be dispassionate yeah. object I've never been like that I almost always yeah. have somebody I want to win and right. I, I often express that <laughs> it's obvious in the columns um and I, I just think there's something incredible about him. But almost all sport you know sometimes I think people say, Oh, it's only poetic if you've got somebody like George Best or or Federer, um, you know, or, or, or Fred Couple, somebody who plays with a certain type of elegance. For me, Sebastian Co running, you I, I find art and poetry and meaning in all sorts of different players and the way they play, the clash of styles, the clash of personalities, all of that brings a life to me. Now, I'm, I'm still playing for time here, Simon. Yeah, you are, not, aren't you? Have you closer. been secretly Googling not, while... No, no, while, no, no, while, no. I'm no, only I joking. Okay. I could ha- have done. Have a guess. Have a guess. Go on. Uh, um, I'll even tell you the year. It's 2010. I'm annoyed with myself that I don't know this. So, he, f- But it's f- revealing, I think. Uh, give, give me the initials. TB. Tb. Yep. Um, Straight I Think we're a table tennis player now. Timo Boll. Um, <laughs> Definitely wasn't. Uh, it. <laughs> uh, um, I'm I'm kicking myself. Nadal won Wimbledon 2010 against Tb. So Federer's not there. Murray's not there. Verinka's not. Tb there. beat Federer. Oh, it's in... it's uh, it's, uh, it's a big server, is it? Is oh, he, it? He uh... had a fairly big server. Yeah. Go on, tell me.
0: Thomas Burditch. He beat him in the final in I have 2010. No recollect- No recollection. So herein lies my point, right? (laughs) Is that we say it's all about the trophies. And yet that final was relatively forgettable. And yet in terms of its comparative value, it's no less valuable on that score than the win in 2008. But the magic was what they created together in that moment. When he hit that backhand, when he hit that forehand, that tie break, all that stuff. To me, that's the magic of sport. Now we talk about it in terms of in terms of winning and trophies and everything like that. You touched on Djokovic. I just want to add something quickly there. So I've heard you say a number of times, right? Who would you if you had to have someone play for your life, it would be Djokovic, right? I would completely agree with that because he, you know, he's mentally incredibly tough, et cetera, et cetera. But let me ask you this. But if we had to poll a hundred tennis fans around the world, right? Because at the end of the day, tennis isn't a, b- a blood sport. It's not life or death. It's what we're talking about. It's that losing yourself in the moment. If you had to pay, or 100 people had to give their view of who they would pay to watch, to lose themselves in the moment, who do you think it would be? Federer, Federer or Djokovic?
2: But remember, they would go for Federer. Of course they, they would, would. go. For, of course they would. Yeah, but these things are subjective. You ask 100 people and ask them, whose music do they prefer, Lennon or McCartney? <laughs> You would have you would have massive disputes if you ask them the Beatles or the Stones you'll get disputes. I love that subjectivity by the way, and I, I you know I actually prefer I, I like both McCartney and Lennon. Frankly, I was going to say McCartney a bit more. I do admire him very much. The other thing I really love about sport more now than when I first started writing about it is the manner of how we play. So not just what you're talking about the poetic elegance that one brings to how one hits or kicks. See, I wouldn't say ball, poetic or, 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 elegance. I would say what?
0: that ability to transcend you to a place where you're like, oh, I never knew that was possible. That, I would say, Federer has been peerless at.
2: You, you mentioned Federer. I mentioned Federer's back and down the line against Nadal. In the tiebreak against Federer at Wimbledon, in, when was it? Was it 2019? Yeah, when, what,
0: what when Djokovic won from two years. Yeah, 2019.
2: In, in the tiebreak, there's a very big point Djokovic is about two up and they have quite a long rally baseline exchange and then Djokovic plays a backhand down the line which left scorch marks on the court it's an incredible shot and and I think Andrew Castle who I like and and is a good friend I know you know him too said shot of the century I mean it's just an incredible Uh stroke he says that a lot to be fair no he does he does (laughs) Uh, he said it I think the point before and the point after but the (laughs) um, but it's a magnificent shot. I would put that up there as something that had deep meaning for me because the meaning for me and the losing oneself it isn't just about them doing something impossible or even beautiful. It's about the way they're able to raise themselves to do something that would seem so improbable yes. when you think about that young boy in war-torn yeah. Yeah, Serbia yeah. No, no, and, I- and mastering the art and science of tennis in such a way as to be so dependable on the big point. The dependability of Djokovic I find completely mesmerising. But the other thing, Simon, is how how people react at the end of a game. That day when England lost to, uh, England beat New Zealand, do you remember it was a super over? It was yes. incredible and it oh, was a couple of refereeing controversies. Yeah, at the yeah. end, the New Zealand players shake hands, they salute their opponents and then they leave the field of play. That may seem like a trivial thing, but the fact that we typically shake hands after a match and we show that there's something more... It's kind of going to a point yeah. more important than the winning and losing. I think that, yeah. for me, is 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 very, very important and something that's very beautiful as well.
0: I completely agree with that. And I agree with everything you've said. And I, I think it is subjective, these things. But I think that however we get it, whether it be through music, art, Federer, Djokovic, Martina, Chrissy, whatever... To me, though, it is about that transcendence, that cessation of time, that losing of ourself, that merging with the experience. so there is only that for sometimes only a brief period or for ninety minutes or whatever it is to me, that is the beauty of sport and it also does reveal something about us as people as well. I think that you know we're perhaps overly identified with our identities. you know we take this narrative. Uh, self that's you know based on what's happened to us in the past and what might happen to the future too seriously the fact that we crave and we love it when that goes to me that has uh, implications and i think you alluded to it very beautifully in your article from the cessation of time to sharing that with friends and family as you spoke about
2: Mm -hmm. and i do love watching you're right The, the social aspect is so So wonderful. I'm now really kind of mouthwateringly looking forward to the Australian Open (laughs) uh, in in January. It's not far away now. I stayed up, you know, I I had a, I was actually near Hinkley Point. I was giving a talk at the nuclear power station on a Monday morning and it was an early start. Very, very early start and a very important, um, uh, important speech for me because I wanted to get it right. It's an important part, I think, of UK's energy future and nuclear fission but um jokovic jo- flame Med- uh, medvedev that night oh, US yeah. open final yeah, yeah and i and i got you know I, I phoned the hotel that i was staying in and I, do you have do you have it on the telly no we don't and i'm, I'm panicking and eventually i realize that i'm going to get a wireless signal and it's good enough to watch and i you know, i was just to- i mean it's on a small laptop that i yeah. took with me i don't think i left the deck. i was in it was there In Flushing Meadows, just absolutely brilliant contest where Djokovic was tired. I mean, he very nearly... Then uh, he got rolled over. It was a fantastic, another great match. But how many of them have been great? I mean, the I mean Nadal, but yeah, Federer no, we, finals, Federer, Djokovic, oh, God, Djokovic, yeah. Nadal. Oh, a couple yeah. of the Murray finals. When he beat Djokovic at the U.S. Open, in particular, oh, what yeah, a yeah. final that was. Some of the, I mean, Serena Williams. i like, lucky enough that interviewed her. Some of her, I mean, tennis. Steffi, a goodness Steffi. I, okay, enjoy. here's a, here's a
0: quick question then for you, for you, Matthew. So you had this big talk. You wanted to get it right. Uh, It was important for you, and yet you took the time out to watch Djokovic against Medvedev. Finished late as well, I've got to tell you. otherwise, might you not have spent that time thinking, oh, okay, well, what if this happens? What if this happens in the talk? That actually gave you a respite from the talk. Oh, yeah. So actually, course, yeah, in some yeah. ways, it was perhaps, was it not just what you need to invigorate you to yeah. give your best the next day? And again, that's further evidence of, of why we need and, and value this stuff.
2: Right, absolutely. The balance line. I mean, the Greeks, the ancient, uh, sorry to go back to them, but they had it right. They saw sport, not as something that was antithetical to intellectual pursuits. They saw the gymnasium and the academy as the kind of complementary facets of the human soul. You know, when they would go, I mean, it's beautiful reading some of the accounts of going to watch in an ancient Olympia um, from Lucian and, and others. I think Plato got his nickname from Platus, uh, broad-shouldered. I think he was very into wrestling. Right um but I, I you know i I think you're absolutely right. you've gotta have the yin and the yang and, the yin and, and, and the sport. Yang. Exactly. the sport is 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 definitely the yang for me a hundred percent that's
0: a a beautiful place to finish I think listen, Matthew, there was plenty more I wanted to speak to you about, so maybe we'll do another one, but we'll save that for another day as always. I've loved chatting to you, Matthew. I don't know if you've got any uh, any final thoughts on this subject that we um have dug deep into before we one go. More?
2: I've enjoyed it. I've I've lost myself a bit. in I just looked at the time. We, we recorded this on a Monday afternoon. We started, what was it, quarter past three. It's now 13 minutes to five. If anyone out there is still listening, thank you for staying with us. And are you on Twitter? I'm on Twitter. I'd love yeah. to hear what people think about some of the things we've said on the deep stuff. I'm still learning there. I'd love to hear how people switch off, how they remain in the present, how they yeah. get that balance right, you know, and where they find their meaning and the other thing you said, this is the thing that's definitely going to stay with me. You talked about conversation as just an, a, a fundamental part of of life. And I've been reading a couple of books in the last couple of days about conversation, about why it matters. And that to do that with friends, I don't think I've done enough of that with my friends, gone out. Just sat down and chatted 100%. and 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 caught up and had a beer or a glass of wine, whatever it has to be. You know, I'm just look as you're talking, right? I'm on a I'm on a WhatsApp group with with my two of my closest friends, Michael and Richard. I'm looking through the messages, you know, and we have missed out on meeting each other. You know, Michael's got two children, Richard you know, he's busy as a, as a property developer. We don't see each other anywhere near. And we've got to put a bit, I'm going to send a note to them, right? So thank you, Simon. I'm going to say, look, we've got to meet up. We've actually got to put it in the diary and stick to it because we miss it. We really, really miss it. And, and
0: I, listen, it's easy I, to get out of the habit. I, I completely agree with you. And just to add one thing to that is, that for me, even taking the opportunity to pick up the phone, even for work calls or whatever, I find that I get a boost from that. So even just those sort of phone calls. And if I haven't spoken to a friend or someone outside, apart from my wife and our kids, apart from that, I notice that I have a yearning and it's, it's a need that is not being fulfilled. And I do think these smartphones that I'm holding up here now, yeah. I think it's got a bit in the way of that. And I think we suffer as a result. Couldn't agree more.
2: Thank you. I've loved it. Loved the chat and I'm definitely up for it again. Let's let's revisit indeed. Matthew Said, always
0: a pleasure. Thank you very much. And speak again soon. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Life Lessons Podcast. I would be delighted to hear your thoughts, your ideas, your guest suggestions, your questions. Just get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. That's it for now. I will be back with a bite-sized episode this Friday and another full-length episode next week. Until then, goodbye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes,